You're listening to audio from Stapleton Baptist Church. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit stapletonbaptistchurch.org. We pray this message blesses you. Show honor to one another. Here's what he says. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Again, Paul is reinforcing the church is the household, the family of God. We don't simply relate to one another as men or women or young or old. We relate to one another as fathers, as mothers, as brothers, as sisters. And that should shape our interactions. So Paul tells Timothy, don't rebuke an older man, but instead encourage him as you would a father. The Greek word used there for rebuke has this sense of rebuking harshly, speaking very harshly to someone. Now, Paul is not saying that older people never need a rebuke, but he's telling Timothy not to do that in a harsh way, but rather to appeal to them in a respectful way as if he would to his own father. The same with younger men. He's meant to treat them as brothers. The same with older women. He's meant to treat them as if they were his own mother. And the same with younger women. He's meant to treat them as if they were his sister in all purity. And this is meant to emphasize the familial nature of the fellowship within the church and the honor that we have to, that we should show to one another. And because of that, our fellowship should be characterized by a loving respect that's shown to all. We should want the best for one another. We should seek to do good for one another. We should pray the Lord blesses and guides one another. We should seek to build one another up with our words. And even when a fellow brother or sister needs correction or rebuke, we, do, we should do so in a way that lovingly is seeking to bring them back into faithfulness and purity before God. So that's how Paul sets the stage for this passage as he gives instructions on how to show honor to one another. And now starting in verse 3 and continuing through the beginning of chapter 6, Paul is going to give specific instructions regarding honoring three subgroups within the church and how they are to be treated and regarded. He's going to address widows in the church. He's going to address elders or pastors in the church. Then he's going to address those in the church who are bond servants or slaves. So the first group is widows. Pick up with me in verse 3. Paul says this, Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let's pause there. Right from the start, we have an interesting phrase, honor widows who are truly widows. When we read that, it should make us wonder, What does he mean by truly widows? Are there fake widows? Are some widows more widows than others? What does Paul mean here? Well, we get to the answer to that question in verse 5. He says, she who is truly a widow is left all alone. 
So when Paul is speaking of true widows, he is really speaking of widows who have no other family at all who can support them or any family who is willing to support them. They are completely on their own. That's who Paul says is a true widow. And it's important for us to understand the, the plight or the situation for, for widows in ancient times. This is long before uh, countries developed any welfare systems. There's no so social security checks. There's no pension plans that's going to come in. In ancient times, widows were in a very vulnerable position. In virtually every case, uh, the man or the husband was the owner of all the possessions and property, and rarely was the wife the direct heir of the husband's will. So it was most often the firstborn son or sons who were the direct heirs. And so if a husband died and the sons did not take care of their mother, then she would be in a very difficult situation. Or if they had no sons at all to take care of her, very difficult situation. She would have no property, no possessions besides the dowry that she was given at marriage. And that dowry was likely not going to support her for very long so widows, especially if they're older widows, may be forced into a situation where they are at the mercy of, of begging to survive. Or if a widow was younger and had young children, she'd have to somehow eke out an existence and provide for her young family in a world that was not very favorable toward women providing for themselves. It was a serious situation. That's why it's no surprise that the New Testament places a significant emphasis on the care of widows and also honors righteous widows as well. Luke chapter 2 mentions the righteous widow Anna, who served in the temple night and day well into her 80s. Even in Jesus' teaching, he often spoke well of widows. Like in Mark 12, Jesus commends the poor widow who places her two copper coins in the offering at the temple. In Luke 7, it tells us that Jesus interrupts a funeral procession to raise a widow's son back to life. In Luke 18, Jesus told the parable of the persistent widow. And even on the cross, one of Jesus' last concerns, even as he's hanging on the cross, is to make sure his mother, who we understand to be a widow, is cared for. He charges John with caring for his mother. Then we discussed a few weeks back that in Acts chapter 6, the seven men who are the prototype of deacons, they're established to serve a need among the widows. And then in James 1.27, it straightforwardly tells us religion that is pure and undefiled is this, to look after orphans and widows in their affliction. So there's a clear foundation for this in the New Testament. It's no surprise then that Paul says to honor widows who are truly widows, those widows who have no family to support them. But Paul has some implied instructions for both widows and for the family of the widows. <clears throat> for the widows, his instruction is to use their widowhood or their singleness now to devote themselves to God. He commends the true widows who have set their hope on God and continue in supplication and prayers night and day. But that also comes with a warning against any widows that he calls are self-indulgent, meaning that they're living for pleasure. Rather than devoting themselves to God and his work, they are chasing after the things of this world. And Paul says that that widow is dead even while she lives, that she is spiritually corrupt and dead. And from this, we get the idea that Paul is encouraging widows who are older to remain single 
and to use their singleness for God's glory. Paul even says this more directly in 1 Corinthians 7, 8. He says to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Paul's purpose and explanation behind those words is that their singleness, in their singleness, they can devote more time and energy to God. And that's practically true because when you're married, you have to devote more energy and time into that relationship. And then when you have kids, your time and energy is further, further spread out and devoted in other areas. So Paul often speaks of singleness as a unique opportunity to devote more of your time and energy to serving God. Then he has an instruction also to the family of the widows. He says, if a widow has children or grandchildren, they are the ones that should take care of her. It's, it's one way they can show godliness by supporting their parents or grandparents in their need. He actually describes it as something that's pleasing in the sight of God. I just I love that idea that there's something that we can do that when God sees it, it pleases him. And anytime the Bible tells us something pleases God, we should be eager to do it. And this instruction also comes with a warning down in verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Those are some serious words right there. What, what is worse than God's sight than an unbeliever? Well, apparently it's someone who claims to follow God, yet they have rejected providing for their family. There's a very strong emphasis in this chapter and the Bible as a whole on the responsibility of the family unit. The family is the front line of responsibility of love and care. You have to start there and then move outward. This is all part of God's good design for creation and humanity. And it's so important that to fail in that responsibility to provide and care for your family, especially those in your household, is equivalent to denying the faith. Paul is saying it is completely inconsistent to say you're a follower of God, but you don't provide for your family. That's because it's a failure to validate your faith in practice. Now let's continue in verse 9. <clears throat> Paul says this, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I'd have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So what's going on here? Well, it seems that it was common in the church to have some sort of official role of the widows that it was caring for or showing honor to, as Paul calls it. <clears throat> and in this sense, in this whole chapter, showing honor meant physically caring for their needs. It's not just thinking nice thoughts about them. Honor has to be shown in a tangible way. 
that may have included even housing. It certainly included, as we see in Acts 6, it included feeding the widows who had no food. Caring for the widows in some of those cases was the difference between life and death. But Paul has some stipulations. He actually has some requirements for what widows can be placed on the roll. Three requirements. First, they have to be over 60 years of age. Life expectancy was much shorter in ancient times, so 60 years of age was much older than we think of it today. It was estimated that in the Roman Empire at the time, only 6 to 8% of the population was over the age of 65. That's compared to closer to 20% for our country. So the widow first has to be of an age that's considered elderly or past the age of working. Then second, having been the husband of one wife. This is the female equivalent of what we read of the elders or deacons needing to be the husband of one wife. It really means marital fidelity and faithfulness, that they were known for singular devotion to their husband. And then third, that they have a reputation for good works. And Paul elaborates on that by giving examples of good works, which include raising children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, caring for the afflicted, and an overall devotion to good works. Now, does this surprise you that Paul put stipulations on this? Does that seem kind of harsh or unloving? Like, would they actually turn some widows away? Why does Paul give these requirements? Well, there's really two reasons. One is so that the church isn't taken advantage of. Paul goes on to say that younger widows should not be enrolled. Instead, they should remarry and raise a family. Why? Well, because apparently there are some younger widows who are in their singleness making vows to dedicate their singleness to God. But then they'd end up seeing a good-looking man and think, you know, actually, I want to get married. And then they would basically break those vows or those oaths that they had made to serve God. And that's what Paul's talking about when he says in verse 12 that they have incurred condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. It's likely these vows that they're making to dedicate their life to serving God in singleness. So he's saying due to the desires of the flesh, they should just go ahead and get married and start a family. It also seems that some of these widows were taking advantage of the system in a way. Paul calls them idlers, which implies that they're likely in good enough health and age to be productive and work. But instead, they're living off the charity of the church and just doing what they want. Not only that, they're turning into gossips and busybodies. As the old saying goes, idle hands are the devil's workshop. That's true at any age. That's true for any gender. Idle young people fall into sin. Idle old people fall into sin as well. And apparently that's what's happening among some of the widows. So Paul says, don't be idle. Instead, get busy, get married, raising a family, and give Satan, the adversary, no opportunity for slander. So Paul doesn't want the church being taken advantage of and through its charity actually enabling these sinful lifestyles. Then the second reason for these requirements is because resources are limited. Uh, of course, we know we serve a God of limitless resources. There is no lack in the kingdom of God. However, money doesn't grow on trees. The church doesn't have any more money than what the bank account says it has. And practically, a church must be wise and steward its resources well, is even when it comes to things like benevolence and caring 
for people. That's why Paul ends by saying, if a woman has relatives that are widows, let her care for them so that the church may not be burdened so that it can care for those who are truly widows. In other words, the church needs to direct its resources where it's most needed. So those are Paul's instructions for honoring widows. And next, Paul will move on to instructions for honoring elders or pastors. So let's pick up at verse 17. Paul says this, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. If you remember, as we talked about a few chapters ago, elders is synonymous with pastors. Paul says to consider the elders, pastors who rule well, worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. This is one of the clearest passages in scripture validating that the role of pastor is worthy of financial compensation. Just like in the case of the widows, to honor in this case means something physical and tangible. And there are two aspects of the role of pastor that Paul emphasizes and and ties to being compensated. First, he mentions ruling, that the elders who rule well, that is leading a church. And then he mentions preaching and teaching. And he adds emphasis by saying, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Paul continually highlights the importance of the ministry of the word and the importance of doctrine in the church. And I can honestly say that preaching and teaching is truly a labor if it's done right. It's not backbreaking work like some. I don't sweat doing it as long as the AC is working right. I don't get calluses studying God's word, but it is hard work. There is a weightiness to it, knowing that eternities are at stake. There's a heaviness to it, knowing that Every single one of you may be dealing with different issues and concerns and sin struggles each week, and the Word has the opportunity to speak into each of those individual situations. Along with that is the recognition that Satan would love nothing more than to bring a pastor down. It is a labor. And so Paul says to doubly honor those who rule and preach and teach well. And in case there's any doubt that he's speaking of financial compensation, he quotes First, from Deuteronomy 25.4 about allowing an ox to eat some of the grain it's grinding. In other words, saying that the one who works for something should be able to benefit from the work. And then he quotes directly from Jesus in Luke 10.7 that the laborer deserves his wages. Paul then moves beyond financial compensation to addressing other matters of honoring the office of elder pastor. He says, don't admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
That's practical advice. You don't give credibility to any and every accusation that may be made. There are people in churches maybe caught in sin themselves that for some reason would like to make false accusations against a pastor or leader. But notice that the honor and trust put in a pastor is not infinite, nor is it blind. There is a limit. Look at verse 20. He says, as for those, he's speaking of pastors still, those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. No one is above rebuke or correction in the household of God, including the pastor. Honor is not limitless or blind. Now, I do believe Paul is speaking of serious sin issues here. He says those who persist in sin, envisioning a pastor who is continuing in public unrepentant sin, that should be confronted publicly for the sake of the whole church, just like Paul does uh, with Peter in Antioch, as it tells us in Galatians. And another aspect of honoring the office of elder is protecting the office from those who aren't ready or qualified for it. Paul warns Timothy not to prejudge or be partial, and he also says, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. And notice the seriousness Paul places suddenly on this. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels. Paul gets really serious all of a sudden. And here's the reason why in verses 24 and 25, this is all connected. He says, the sins of some people are conspicuous. That means that they're obvious, but the sins of others don't show up until later. This is connected to being hasty in the laying on of hands. Uh, he is saying, don't be so quick to put people in positions of authority in the church until you've had enough time to see their true fruit. You need to observe someone over time to see the fruit of their life. In too many churches, people have been thrust into positions of authority and influence before they were ready or based off of very little evidence. Sometimes it happens when someone comes to Christ and they're all on fire for Jesus. They want to save the whole world and people are eager to put a passionate person in a position of influence because of that zeal and passion, but maybe they still have major sin issues that they need to work through and to root out of their life. And the thing is, when we place people in positions of authority before they're ready, when that person falls or implodes, then the devastation affects everyone. So Paul says to take your time. Don't be hasty. Don't rush into putting people into ministry positions that both honors the office of pastor and protects the church. Now, I know I'll have some questions uh, afterward if I don't say anything about verse 23. I heard a couple chuckles as we read it. So let me just say, Paul in, does insert some very personal instructions for Timothy. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So perhaps Timothy had adopted a certain lifestyle or diet of only water or certain foods. Uh, we don't really know, but Paul says, hey, Timothy, drink a little wine for your health. <laughs> There's not much else to comment on here besides the fact that this is a, just another indication that the drinking of alcohol in moderation is not sinful. Otherwise, Paul would not encourage Timothy to drink some wine. So that's Paul's instructions regarding honoring elders and pastors. Then he finally comes around to addressing bond servants and their masters. And let's finish here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. 
Paul says, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. I don't have time to go in-depth on explaining servitude and slavery in ancient times, but do understand that the Bible does not condone slavery in any sense or slavery as we know it. Slavery in ancient times was very different than the chattel slavery associated with colonization that we think of when we think of the word slavery. Many people in ancient times would voluntarily go into servitude, and in some cases, servants even had servants themselves. It was a world made up of servants and masters. And Paul expects that there's likely many Christians in the churches that are servants themselves. They are bond servants. And he has instructions for them to honor their masters. And this honor is also tangible. This, they show honor tangibly by working and serving their masters to the best of their ability. It's similar to Paul's words in Colossians 3.23 Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And that helps us understand that as we honor others, we are ultimately honoring God. And the flip side of that is that we could also dishonor God. That's why Paul tells bondservants to honor their masters. He says, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled how you live, how you conduct yourself, how you treat others, and especially how you treat those within the household of God will either bring honor to the name of God or it will bring dishonor to the name of God. And that's the ultimate motivation behind outdoing one another and showing honor. It comes from an overflow of the love and grace and mercy of God that's been poured out on us and as you become more aware of the overwhelming love and grace you've received from God, it should translate into a greater desire to extend that love and grace to others and to honor others through it. And we'll want to show that honor in a tangible way. It's not just thinking good thoughts about people. Honor is shown tangibly, just as Jesus honored God the Father by faithful obedience, even obedience to the point of dying on the cross. And for us right now, we're going to get to end our service today with two opportunities for us to honor God in a tangible way. First, we're going to honor God by sharing the Lord's Supper together. We'll physically drink the cup and eat of the bread in remembrance of Christ's sacrifice. Then second, we'll be able to honor God through our giving in the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. We honor God tangibly by entrusting our finances to him trusting that he will use it to expand his kingdom. So let me pray for us, and then we'll move into these two opportunities.